Welcome to the Legendarium Green Team. I'm your host, Kip Tan, and with me today are Ashaman. Hello. Dusty. Hey. And Huron. Ohio. <laughs> okay, today we're going to be covering The Fall of Hyperion, the second novel in the Hyperion Cantos. Published in 1990 by Dan Simmons, it won the 1991 British Science Fiction and Locus Awards. It was also nominated for the Hugo and Nebula. So how lucky are we to be reading the Hyperion Cantos, everybody, here in 2022? Super lucky. The miracles of capitalism have provided everyone with a copy of Fall of Hyperion. (laughs) (laughs) Luck kind of depends on, you know, comparing yourself to those around you. And I think everybody else around us also read it, so normal luck that's true <laughs> that's fair i don't know if everyone around us has has read this i really don't I, has the opportunity to read it yeah i know people around me right now definitely haven't read it every moment of every day everyone around you is making the conscious choice to not have read the fall of hyperion i mean my housemates have scene. definitely made the conscious choice because i leave that book lying around in strategic locations <laughs> throughout the month. <laughs> what's this doing in the bread cupboard in the freezer again why is this next to the TV again? Why is this in my relaxing chair? Why is this? That sounds great. Yeah. 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 It's correct. Hyperion should always be at hand when you're at a relaxing chair. Just, you know, <laughs> to leaf through at your leisure. Yeah, it's a Open comfort a page, read. Read some words. Yeah, absolutely. Comfort read. So let's give just some brief first impressions before we dive into the spoiler section today. What did you all think of the first two books out of the three books of The Fall of Hyperion? Ash, it's not first. Hyper- yeah. Me first, Hiran. Come on. Um, yeah. Wow. I really forgot this book, good. which is nice. It's yeah. It's really good. First two books. I, I remembered like one scene specifically, and that was like way later in the book than I thought it was. So it's excellent. I, I love how confusing it is, but like you're still able to work out what's happening. Like if you're paying close attention, and also with the benefit of being a rereader. Okay. Dusty. Yeah, I'm right there with you, Ash. I completely forgot so many parts. I'd get to something and be like, I don't know if I read this book, did I? And um, <laughs> I really did enjoy that because there's the first one I was like, huh, I know what's going to happen. Uh, this one, I had to kind of play that guessing game sometimes and it just made it way more fun. So, you're in. Um, I guess I'll be the third one to say that I also forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Like, I remember some of the big set pieces, but, like, I was just like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, this is what happened? It's very different from Hyperion. I liked it, though. Yeah. Okay. For myself, this was the first time that I've read it for a podcast, which was a different experience. So I went through taking a whole bunch of notes saying, hey, maybe I'll bring this up. Maybe I'll bring this up. And I also made a little chart of each of the chapters and the POVs and learned some new things. So that was fun. I clearly love this book, so. Yeah, I think what probably strikes me the most about why we're not remembering it is there's so much density to what's happening and so little time explaining it. Like, there's a lot of disconnected events that go on. And it, um, (laughs) the book, like, really doesn't let let up, which I think is nicely, uh, Joseph Severn's, his habit of, oh, when he goes to sleep, things happen and when he's awake things are still happening so it's kind of like an exhausting gauntlet that you're running of just things that are happening lots in and of, around lots of things yeah yep. but it serves to help even with like because we know he's exhausted he mentions it but it kind of helps because we're with that and so 
Well, I mean, I think about that and I'm like, man, if, if I don't sleep like a little over, at least over six hours, I'm really un- not fun to be with. And this guy's dreaming all this stuff while he's sleeping. So <laughs> mm-hmm. how is he doing this? That's an excellent point, Ash, because in the first book, really from each of the different travelers' stories, you only need to remember like bits and pieces, but the sheer amount of things that are happening and the interconnectedness of it all requires a lot more thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is the book where you actually start to be able to piece some things together about the current state of the hegemony, not just its past. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And even though the stories in Hyperion are technically less connected by time, this one feels like a lot harder to keep track of events as they're happening and like what's happening at X time. Yes, definitely. And I feel like part of that is intentional for sure. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely, absolutely intentional. A story about time travel and the interconnectedness of time and space and how these things... And people. You know, yeah, yep. exactly. And like your personal timeline compared to everyone else. Yeah. And it makes a big deal, like even especially in the first book about time debt and... Uh, yep. Yeah. So it's definitely yeah. on purpose. Time debt. How quaint does that seem now? <laughs> <laughs> Let's move into the full spoiler section, and if you haven't read or listened to the book in some fashion or another, maybe tune out now. If you're not ever going to read this, maybe continue on. We're going to have fun. Quick recap before we start. We open with Joseph Severn, newly constructed cybrid of John Keats, who has been welcomed into Mana Gladstone's inner circle because of his dreaming connections to the Hyperion Pilgrims. We alternate viewpoints sporadically between him and his dreams. While the hegemony prosecutes its limited war against the ousters, the Pilgrims struggle to find their purpose in the desert. The ousters continue to surprise Force Space. Father Duray and Het Mastine reappear. Gladstone apologizes over tough decisions, and the Pilgrims each have an encounter with the Shrike ending with Saul giving up Rachel at her own insistence. Okay, full spoilers. How much do we like Mena Gladstone? I'm just going to start in on that. Oh. What do we think about Mena Gladstone? Um, I literally wrote a note that was like, question mark, is she the hero we don't deserve? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I was like, read that whole section was like, oh man, I forgot that she was doing this. And I'm like, is it good? Do I agree? In some ways, yes. In some ways, this is horrific. I just really, really like it when there's a woman at the center of the power structure of some enormous thing. That definitely influences my feelings. But yeah, she's also just awesome. She's so cool. And she's like very flawed, of course. But I would love to have her as leader, honestly, because she's she's super capable. She has eyes that are so sad that they can scare away thugs in Dreg's hive. Hmm. Yeah. Just based on the sadness in her eyes. (laughs) I aspire to that. (laughs) I really enjoy the way that she interacts with people and the way that she I don't know, for lack of a better term, manipulates people and makes them shake in their boots. But at the same time, like Dusty said, my opinion's obviously influenced by my knowledge of the end of the book, right? So it's hard for me to make these things uh, objective. But I think I would be wary of her at this point in the story. Just I don't think I can trust her because everything she's doing seems very shady. And uh, it's obvious that she knows a lot more than she's letting on. Yes. But she's not the only person keeping her cards close to the chest. She's playing a deep and dangerous game with some heavy hitters. And Mm -hmm. I think part of that's just to be expected. And she does have a habit of finding people who are capable and effective and will work with her to 
ensure her goals. And one of those people that she's using is our narrator, Joseph Severn. And he kind of seems to be going along with it. So mm-hmm. how do we feel about his trust in her? I think he's impressed, like everyone else, with her strength of will. She has a lot of charisma, and she inspires uh, certain loyalties, at least. I, I've been doing a little bit of learning on American uh, Civil War history. And yeah, I'm really getting strong Lincoln vibes this time around from her. Okay. Very charismatic. She knows what she's doing. She's not afraid to bend the rules to do what she thinks is right. I think that Joseph Severn, he seems very aware of what she's up against. And just in the most obvious opponent, well, one of the most obvious opponents in the techno courts, like that's uh, it's a dangerous adversary to have. And she seems to do actually a great job from uh, my point of view. You compared her to Lincoln because the mm-hmm. book over and over again compares her to Lincoln. Yeah. So in the first, I think, episode, we talked about a lot how well the book compares real like our history, historical events and like our future history events, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. But when it comes to Mena, it's always Churchill, Lincoln, Churchill, Lincoln. I kind of wish they would bring in some more, you know, future history there. Well, they, they do bring in Alvarez Temp almost as often as they bring in Lincoln. Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe that whatever in my head. Yeah. And Joseph Severn says he doesn't often see Lincoln in her. Like he expected a stovepipe hat and she's not that. <laughs> so there, there is a little bit of commentary on the overuse of stereotypes when talking about political leaders. Yeah. Uh, the hegemony itself is also very American. Like there, there's even like an explicit statement like the headquarters that they're at are much more similar to the Oval Office and the White House than they are to the whatever it is, future government organizations. Um, oh, I think it makes yeah. it very interesting. There's the yeah. Capitol building. And they also say that it's only a uh, a bit of an accent that can make you appear like you're speaking old English versus whatever uh, web common is. Mm-hmm. Did anyone else imagine the war room to be like the war room in Doctor Strangelove? <laughs> yes. Oh, <laughs> that's also FIFA's uh, main headquarters. Gentlemen, I mean, I imagine a lot of war rooms. The war room. <laughs> But the holographics that they're able to utilize in their war rooms far outstrip anything that I've seen in popular depiction. Mm-hmm. I can't imagine looking at a graphic the way that they talk about it in 3D like that. I feel like I would just be confused and have like vertigo or something because there'd be so much happening just in front of my face. I love the image of like this little gray carpeted area that's just surrounded by space. Yeah. That would be very fun. And they actually go through like the different levels of holographic representation that you can do in various places like in government house they have the war room but then later they travel to mars and they go to the olympus command school and they have basically an amphitheater which they Mm -hmm. then cover in holograms and they say it can uh, fit the full faculty staff and students of the school so over seven thousand people imagine a space for seven thousand people that has been converted for your personal viewing I don't think I can. I don't think that <laughs> I can't visualize that. It's just a big area. Yeah. Yeah. Anybody think that Amanda Gladstone might have been involved in the kidnapping of Joseph Severn? I don't think she was directly, but I bet she was she expecting didn't stop it, it to happen. And she was, you know, obviously she was hoping it would happen or maybe encouraging it in not so subtle ways, like maybe not giving him guards when otherwise she would have. Mm. Those kind of things. She certainly took advantage of it. I'll say that. Mm-hmm. 
in not stopping the interrogation while it was ongoing. Would you? Of course not. <laughs> yeah, I definitely think that she she let him get exposed to those cir- sort of circumstances. And like he, he didn't have to get kidnapped. He just wanted to sleep with this woman. She was amazing. Yeah. Are we clear more attractive that that's what he wanted? Ever. Well, he knew it. Okay, he knew that she was wanting to seduce him, and he was like, "Yeah, I guess I'll go with it." Right. <laughs> um, he did, did check that the husband was away. Okay, yeah, how did yes. you feel about the line about the woman being more attractive than any man could be? <laughs> it was like her her thighs were whiter and more solid, something like that, than any man's could be. I think that you may. I can search this. (laughs) Oh lord! I think the word "sensuous" was involved. Uh, Probably, yeah. I think that's just standard seduction. Every author has to make at least one reference to something being sensuous. Hmm. Ah, the backs of full thighs and somehow more sensual and solid than any aspect of male Mm. anatomy could hope to be. There you go. Yeah, there you go. There's our straight man, Joseph Severn. Yeah, it really, it really let me sympathize with him more because, uh, yeah, I mean thighs, right? Thighs, yeah, clear, definitive gender markers. Yep. We're not talking <laughs> about KFC. <laughs> Maybe this is just me noticing something that's not there, but he does seem to refer to things being white very often. Mm. I think in a lot of times it's overpowering brightness, so white makes sense there. Oh, I don't think it's Dan Sims being racist. It's just like something I noticed when he talks about like physical characteristics of things. It's just like everything. Okay. Is white. Hmm. I didn't notice that, but I'll I'll accept it. Yeah. How many times does white appear in this novel? Uh, seventy times. <laughs> <laughs> that seems like a lot. Yeah. Okay. I'm vindicated. <laughs> uh, I want to sing the song. You want to sing the song? He said vindicated. All right. We'll back up. We, I don't know that back. song. You'll have to dashboard send it to Dashboard confessional? Me. Now I need to hear it. Oh, God. Dashboard. I haven't thought about them in a while. You don't know Vindicated? I am selfish. I am wrong. Okay. All right. All mm-hmm. right. Later. <laughs> yeah. I'll check it out. I probably have heard it before. I'm just uh, so bad with knowing the pop culture lingo. Be, be, be prepared to be transported backwards in time to one of the first Spider-Man movies. Oh man, he just said, be prepared. Now I got a song in my head. <laughs> this will all be cut. <laughs> okay, so talking about statistical anomalies and the makeup of this book, were you guys surprised that basically every point of view in here is Severn's coming from Hyperion? I like it. Or it could be Bronze, because she dreams... Of Severin when she Ooh. dreams. So that is that is true. Who has the dreams? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and were you surprised that Severin spent the entire second a book asleep? Oh yeah. yeah. I wondered about <laughs> that. Like what happened to him? I guess I missed that. Well then the, the Gladstone section isn't from his point of view then. No. It? no. it is it is from Gladstone's point of view. So we get You're that. Right. Oh yeah, it is Gladstone. We get two Gladstone points of view. Yep. Which I, I kind of liked. Yeah, the second one from Gladstone was honestly my favorite part of the book so far. Was that was, the, where oh, that when she was going to... She's walking through the worlds, yeah. That's the first one. Is that the first one? Sure, that's the first one. That one's my favorite. <laughs> what was one? the second one? Favorite too. The second is when she's in the war room saying, and how exactly did you miss these stealth fleets? 
Oh, right. See, I, I guess I forgot jo- uh, Severn wasn't there. Yeah, th- that one was cool, too, because I just... During that, she's like, where is Severn? And he's not there. She recalls back to her side Severn and Lee in that meeting. Lee Hunt. And, and, yes, Commander Lee Hunt. Colonel, isn't it? Uh, I thought it was Commander. Maybe it is. I don't know. I know that there's a Colonel in the start, and he's giving the brief, and I thought that was Lee Hunt, but... No, uh, that was Colonel Yanni. Ah, it's a lot of military personnel. Yeah, y- Yanni was also watching his career go down the drain at that point, but but they, she brought him back, right? And nearly all of them incompetent, or at least currently uh, seemingly incompetent. She got them all of them to give unanimous assent and confirmation that they thought that was the right plan, except Lee. And then they shipped Lee off to go do a frontier oh, tour right, that, that would take yeah. 20 years. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And she could have gotten their resignations at any time after that. Mm-hmm. But there yep. is no time. She cannot gloat. She cannot bask in being right. She has to use the people that are there in that moment. Because mm-hmm. she doesn't have much time left. And maybe the web won't either. I think this is uh, authentic information. Because these guys, they seem so, I don't know, up their own butt in their hubris. and. Uh, thinking that they understand everything that's going on, but then they get, you know, they get kicked. Yeah, you know what they say about making assumptions. Do you think this book could work with an omniscient narrator? I don't. No, <laughs> that would be interesting. <laughs> yeah, because there's stuff that we it adds to the mystery by not knowing that high level view stuff. Yeah, yeah. There, there's basically just two types of third person narrator. There's omniscient, and then there's limited. And the limited is always usually in the perspective of like a character in the story, right? Usually. Or, or characters. Yeah, yeah, or characters. Maybe a third person limited, but it's not in a character's head. Yeah, this this is true third person limited for the most part. Mm-hmm. Gladstone and Severn are our closest that we get to their internal thoughts. Everybody else, it's mostly actions. Yeah, the pilgrims, uh, they, they all get a fair bit of contemplation from the... Uh... We get a bit with Lamia and Kassad... And Martin, a little bit with Martin during his everyone gets one close chapter when mm-hmm. they're about to meet the Shrike. Oh, yeah. Good point. Like during um, on his walk and then so yep. like right at the end there, he gets in. Mm-hmm. Which, by the way, those sections where it's just Dure and Soul hanging out are phenomenal. <laughs> I love the way they talk together. The little friendship that forms is awesome. I have in my notes, the scholars talk. And then later, once the mm. console left, the religious scholars talk. Abrahamic religion. We just need Kassad to talk about uh, Islam. Oh, yeah. yeah no, the, the conversation rapidly changes once you get Braun, Selenus, and Kassad out of the picture. Oh, and Hoyt. Yeah. Yeah. Were you surprised at how, how uh, civil Braun uh, Lamia was with uh, Silenus when Silenus was just <laughs> like, hey, I want to stay here. She's just like, oh, Oh man, I feel bad for this old, deranged, stupid old man that complains the entire time. As soon as she leaves, he's like, "Yes, my plan worked." <laughs> but she left her water. Like he was touched. Thelenus was touched a little bit by how much Lamia didn't leave him on his own and didn't immediately cast him off as useless and wasteful. <laughs> Despite the fact that he totally was. <laughs> 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 Just like all artists, right? Yeah, no, she's she's a softie at heart. Just like all artists, yes. 
including the ones that wrote this novel for us to talk about for hours. Thank you, Dan Simmons. Mm, yes. Okay. So I think that's probably enough about Gladstone for a little bit. <laughs> we'll circle back to her. Yeah, we'll come back to Gladstone. Maybe next episode. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Let's talk about who she thinks, at least, are her main antagonists. Did we get any insight into the Technocore's actions during this section? Like, none. <laughs> They're, like, impressively opaque. Yeah. Is it possible to read an AI through a hologram that he's projecting just for your convenience? Right? I think someone did a an experiment, an AI researcher did an experiment, where they were determining if an AI was in a black box and a person was nearby and they were able to communicate, whether or not the person would ever leave the AI in the black box or would allow it to be out. Um, yeah, turns out uh, the AI escapes every time. <laughs> <laughs> Great. What? Wait. What is this? Where is that from? That's from a field of AI research. Okay. I think a psychologist took upon himself. Interesting and scary. I'd love to know the education level of the people letting the AI out of that black box. Were were they AI (laughs) researchers? But Uh, I think some of them were. Well, it's not just education level, but understanding or like what if like a super sci-fi nut was in there too do you think they would let the ai out of the box you think they'd be like no way man i think if exposed long (laughs) enough to the ai then like everyone lets it out oh like some people with certain prejudices could keep it in longer Mm. Um, i mean it's the garden of eden story right yeah it's incredibly easy to make humans sympathize with non-human entities were they given the option of killing the ai uh i don't (laughs) think (laughs) maybe that's I don't the know. mistake. You know. <laughs> Just kill That's it whenever you mistake. can. Yeah. Okay, we've got the Huron Jihad over here. Yeah. <laughs> I've read Dune. I know how this goes. <laughs> well, but then you also have other worlds like the culture. So That's true. The culture is AI the ideal propaganda. place to live. It, it is AI propaganda. Well, you, you don't get the level of idealism you see in the, cult, uh, the culture without AI, right? That's mm. the good ending for humanity, right? You can see it in some fantasy works, and sometimes there's like a Gaia idea where like it's not exactly an AI, it's just a culmination of all the life on a planet or something. Oh, yes. I too have read Asimov. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But when trying to dispute or contest anything with a culture of weakly godlike AIs with prediction probabilities over 96%, how do you win? You don't. You play you your cards your close cult. to your chest. Yeah, what are the things that you can do to improve your chances? Maximize chaos. Yeah, maximize chaos. Involve Hyperion. Yep. That's... Yeah, you find their one blind spot. Yeah, that's the only way humans have out, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Well, it also kind of reminds me of um, the wall facers from, I know without giving anything away, from the Three-Body Problem series. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah. I need to read that. It's... Oh, it's yeah. a very similar thing. Yep. Mm-hmm. That book's so good. <laughs> that book, Those books are great. Mm-hmm. What else would you do than playing things close to your chest and trying to induce maximum chaos? It's really hard, right? Because like, the AIs have like all the advantages. They're both orders of magnitude more intelligent, and they can think orders of magnitude faster. Yep. A minute-long conversation between an AI, that AI has the equivalent of like years to think about uh, what its responses are going to be. And just think of what you could do with responses, like, like years between each one of your responses <laughs> in conversation, right? Yeah, I recently played a turn-based strategy game, and I did worse than the real-time ones, so... 
<laughs> you could give it to the it, despair. Yeah, I yeah. don't have the perfect memory that AIs do. I just kind of like to think of it as the AI goes to have a shower and then like thinks over in their head what the perfect response to be like this past conversation like everyone oh, sure. does, right? Yeah. 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 Well, could it be that? No, part of it is that she is sort of forcing the AIs to play her game instead of her playing their game. So mm-hmm. like you just said, instead of playing like a real-time strategy versus then she forces them to play the turn base because she know on the turn base it'll be harder for them or more equal footing. Yep. She also does her best to make them show their hands. She does a pretty good job, but what she can, uh, yeah, it's like really hard. Would you say maybe that enhancing your own personal power to the highest levels you can get it would maybe be an effective preparatory stratagem? Yes, but limited because the AIs control like all the technology in the web. They run their economy. They run their big communication centers. They run the farcasters. Yep. <laughs> What's the average chance of a Joe Schmo? Not a Bron Lamia or a Kassad, but just a regular everyday citizen of the web with no special things that have ever happened in their lives. What's the chance of them ever thwarting the Technocore? Zero percent. In practical terms, zero. Well, because you put it like that, because if you do have absolute control, right, you control all the variables, then in a way, you're the same predicting machine that the Technocore would be. Because if there's so many variables, then it's hard for you as one person to figure out what's going to happen. But if you can bring all those variables into you and what you know, then you have similar prediction abilities that a Technocore would have. If you become aware that, like, one strike carrier in the right place would free humanity from the Technocore, and you have the authority to order around all strike carriers, that's useful. Mm-hmm. Almost as good as, like, corralling all the butterflies and make them cause hurricanes. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> this whole topic is making me think about, I don't know, God and free will. And humans created the uh, Technocore, right? Now, Technicore mm-hmm. has surpassed humans and basically become the god of the humans because most people don't have free will if the Technicore controls everything, right? For the and majority the of people, this is true. They have made great progress towards becoming god. And the Technicore is trying to create their own god, which, I don't know, would seem to probably do the same thing in the same spiral, if that makes sense. This, this story's got a lot of gods and their creations and creators mm-hmm. and the fight between that. Going back to scholar talk, uh, they did talk about how every one of them was a deus ex machina in the making, Yeah. right? So Mana Gladstone maybe has put all of her eggs in one basket, but she has also made sure that each of those eggs has a possibility of saving everything, or at least a hope, because she's really living on hopes at this point. Yeah, like, like you know it's a long <laughs> shot, but you got you to gotta take the chance, because the alternative is just that humans do just get wiped out slowly, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, you have to take it. Although you can tell, like, all the time she's worried about casualties. Oh yeah, she can't sleep. Yeah, She can't sleep, and she always asks the generals, like, okay, how many people are on those ships? Yeah. How many people are on Hyperion? How many people are being displaced by this? Has that surprised anyone else? And then at a certain point, they can't tell her anymore. They don't know. Mm-hmm. Surprise? Yeah, I'm a bit surprised because even in our wars, even today, we we might have four thousand people die from a skirmish, right? But the future, where there's hundreds of billions of people in this uh, hegemony, and Mana Gladstone is 
Like it, it seems people don't kill people anymore. Weapon systems do. I know, but you you'd think with the increase of the population of humanity, the the value of life would be de- would decrease. But it, seemingly, it's the opposite in this world, and that it's only increased. Mm. For Gladstone, I think yes. I think for mm. her generals, they're very yes. much like yeah, these guys are expendable. Yeah, it's the equipment that costs a lot. I think they view every single marine as expendable. Yeah, it was uh, really interesting to see Kassad's military capabilities with just like a standard force rifle. Yes, and, and yeah, like this is a setting where it's really sci-fi, and humanity's destructive potential is like so much higher than ours which I think is really cool to see. Uh, Very scary. I really liked the display of conventional military power and their space battles and the way all of it was completely ineffective. (laughs) Yeah. Mm -hmm. At every stage, the generals were like, yeah, we got this. It's worse than it was before, but yeah, we got this. You just got us more reinforcements or whatever. And yeah, yeah, they get completely screwed at every turn. Every turn. The battle just keeps getting worse. They keep being wrong. They think they know what they're doing. They don't. Kassad knows that someone is toying with him from the top of the crystal monolith. And he continues to fight knowing that he will probably be defeated. But knowing that that's what he has to do anyways. He has to fight. But he's a, oh man, some of that stuff started to drive me nuts. He's like your typical (laughs) grunt. It gets to a point where Moneta's trying to talk to him to be like, you need to help us more with this. And he's like, no, I'm going to kill the Shrike. And it's like, dude, (laughs) there's more happening. Listen for a second. Just calm down, listen, and maybe you'll get some answers and figure out what to do. But he's like, nah, I'm going to kill the Shrike. I'm going to kill the Shrike. I'm going to kill the Shrike. I'm going to kill you, Manita. He did rape him. Yeah. No, 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 here, and it wasn't a rape. He subconsciously wanted it. Yeah, I hated that bit. I hated that bit. (laughs) She raped me. She raped me. The next scene, uh, maybe I wanted it. (laughs) Like, what the hell? He was asking for it. The worst thing is that in a story with time travel, it's not a foregone conclusion that that's wrong. Yeah. Mm. Um, but in this case, I'm pr- I'm very comfortable calling it wrong. Mm. Yeah, I- I'm comfortable saying that if you're ever thinking that way in real life, just back off. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, God. this is not good. But when there's time travel involved, you have to like think things through. At least I did not enjoy my thinking through process about this trying to mm-hmm. justify this rape, but you do have to think about it. There could be prior arranged consent, and maybe that's a point the author is trying to make. There wasn't, but it could be. There could have been. I'm going to process this. <laughs> I didn't consider yeah. that. I'm still thinking, yeah, and my, I, time is here, and it's, okay, never mind. The, whenever I try and think about time in Hyperion, it just doesn't work. It's like, <laughs> it's not as bad as Primer, but it, oh, yeah, it kind of gets close. Love primer. No, they had an emotional connection apparently, which told him he told himself that he told her somehow through nonverbal communication that it was okay to go rape him back in the past. Yeah. Which see, no pr- pr- primer I think makes sense. Whereas Hyperion, I think there's there's definitely a, a real big timey wimey maybe facet. maybe they bring up the time tombs being like four dimensional constructs, which like m- means it makes sense for them to be bigger and different times as others yes Um, and and sometimes i'm able to you know work out and grasp how the time tombs are working but other times it's just like yeah i'm not feeling smart enough right now (laughs) 
I mean, you're not intended to understand how the time tombs work at this point in time. You're intended to have ideas, but definitely not to be able to come to a definitive conclusion. Mm-hmm. I me, why me, to me, woo me. <laughs> Jeremy, bear me. Yeah. Uh, we did have a question. How many time tombs are there? Anybody want to answer this one? Okay, but I also was curious. My question is time tombs and pilgrims. How many pilgrims, uh, how many time tombs yes. connect in this Who thing? are the pilgrims? Because people come and people go. Yes. Especially John Keats, Joseph Severn, possibly Mana Gladstone, because she's getting viewpoints. Hoyt. Hoyt, DeRay, and Mastine. Mm-hmm. All of those people are maybe pilgrims, maybe not, maybe present, maybe not. Have we gotten a Mastine uh, perspective? No. Oh. No. No, we have not. not. Mastine showed up for like a chapter and then died after <laughs> doing some incoherent <laughs> ravings. <laughs> Much don't don't forget, he was unconscious for most of a chapter as well. Yeah, yeah that's true. <laughs> Tell and they were me like, your oh, story, man. I want right? to know about the trees. <laughs> I, I want to know how the Templar Brotherhood got tangled up with the Church of the Shrike. Yeah. Yeah. Was he supposed to pilot the Tree of Pain that just appeared in the last chapter? Tree of Pain using force fields. Yeah. Using force field creatures. To, to propel it backwards through time? Yeah, see, that's something that I don't get. But I'm sure it sort of makes sense if you're like a mathematician and can work out contours very well. <laughs> Look, all you need to know is that time travel is possible, and the tree can do it. Oh, speaking of the tree, uh, Kassad knew all along that Martin was going to get impaled on it. Yeah. He just didn't tell him. Not a cool thing to do. Well, he, like, kind of implied it in the first book, right? Like, a little bit, but if I saw someone get murdered, I'd be like, hey, you're going to get murdered. Maybe take that into consideration. But would you tell someone if they were going to be murdered and tortured for all of eternity? Like, um, is there any point in telling them? It's obviously maybe not. You know, maybe no point in telling them. Martin specifically, because <laughs> like he would probably just tell you screw off. I mean, <laughs> and then say the a stupid of, poem. Do you want to know when and how you die? Yes. Yeah. Mm. That's not if it was Shrike Tree. <laughs> I think it's. I think it's fine for you to make that decision for yourself, but to make that decision for someone else is a little more problematic. That's true. You could be like, <laughs> you could you could test the waters. I mean, they did know, ask like, though. They did ask. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. And Kassad was like, "Don't ask questions you don't want answers to." <laughs> yeah. And Martin was thinking that like everyone was going to get killed by the strike anyways, or get bailed in the tree. So it's true it probably wouldn't have changed his behavior at all because he's insufferable (laughs) they asked did you see any of us on the tree and he said yes yeah he didn't say who but speaking of martin on the tree what do we think of his connection to the shrike now horrifying it's horrifying the way the shrike communicates with him dusty i know this is big for you earlier uh I don't know. I just because it gets. I can't remember a lot of stuff from here on out, and it just gets to that point where it's like he's. I don't think he's controlling the strike. I think, like you said, he just thought he was, or it was just kind of a not coincidental, but like something planted that for him. And then now I think that he has a larger role, and the reason he's on the tree is he's being saved for the role. But I can't really remember. So yeah, the, okay. the tree is just like it's like deep storage. <laughs> yeah, that's what I kind of feel like it is, like at this point in the story. I, 
I mean, it does seem like they don't die on there, so maybe this could be a way to carry him even further along the ship of time. Mm-hmm. Mm. And everybody else on the tree. And everybody else on that tree, and the variety of eras of clothing that they're wearing. Mm-hmm. Time. Although, I can't imagine many of them are sane. No, no, I can't yeah. either. Martin really strikes me as the, just like his intuitive capabilities are just like off the charts. And mm-hmm. those were probably engineered in him to at least to some extent by the Technocore before the, the events of Hyperion take place. Okay. Maybe when he was getting his satirization surgery done? Well, like the cryopods on his ship failed, right? Yeah. Oh, why did those fail? We know that the fall of Earth was engineered. Why did he yeah. land, end up where he did? And then just like the various things that happened. It does seem like a lot of cryopods failed, though. Yeah, yeah. that's true. But uh, at a certain point, like when something has like 99.96% probability projections, you have to wonder like what aren't they involved in? Yes. And how much of that missing like 2% is just Hyperion? Yeah. Uh, On Barnard's world, how much can't they predict 200 years in advance? Yeah. I mean, I'm on record saying that I think they deliberately killed Sarai. And yes, you are. Yeah. It's soft, softly confirmed, I think, here. When they say, oh, Saul would never have undertaken this journey if Sarai hadn't died. Okay, here, here's another question. Do you think that the Technocore did that, or do you think that Mayna Gladstone did that? I think it was the Technocore, because they gave her the names. In I don't know how far in it was. It was a group of names that were all arrived at in some sort of like consensus manner with input from a variety of factions. I think it was a specific faction within the, uh, the Technocore. Okay. Um, that did it. I think so too. Now, do you think the Technocore or Mana Gladstone killed the consul's family? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I think Gladstone. Um, honestly, I think they probably both had a hand in it. Mm-hmm. Oh, both of them. Okay. Yeah. Hmm. They kind of like shook hands or like, yes, we will murder this man's family. Or they were both plotting the exact same thing. Yeah, Man of Glass was like, Albedo, what are the probabilities on this man breaking <laughs> in 40 years yeah. if you murder his family? Yeah, like, I have to think that, like, if she didn't know, wasn't given these names, like, far in advance, then she maybe she's been, like, seeding pilgrims <laughs> for, like, a long time, <laughs> just, like, secretly ruining people's lives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what, she's the one the hiding behind pilgrims? the screen. Yeah, yeah, she's the one hiding behind the screen when your loot boxes don't give you the stuff that you want. I wonder if Melio Arundes and like Edward might have been alternate pilgrims. Hmm, that's a good idea, actually. Yeah, Melio totally seems like he could be set up for it, right? But what maybe would be Melio's weakness in comparison to Saul, who ended up on the pilgrimage itself? It's not Jewish. He's a physicist. That is a weakness. Yeah, <laughs> but like he's not able to. I don't think that he's probably the phys- philosophical giant that Sol was, just kind of like reasoning out theological problems. Yeah, uh, and I think he would also probably drag the story too much into technical pits <laughs> from a meta meta perspective. Do you think that maybe he would look for a scientific understanding confirmed by instruments more than a philosophical one confirmed by words? Yeah, philosophical or or intuitive one, yeah. And it's well established that current uh, hegemony technology is not able to do pretty much anything involving the time tombs or the Shrike. 
Nope. Except give a vague and not always useful early warning system about the time tides. Yeah, and you can sense the anti-entropic fields. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> Apparently, <laughs> gives you vertigo. Bad vertigo. Does it prevent you aging? Like, could you stay in the time tombs and just live forever? I want to know, like, if you scratch a time tomb, does it repair itself? Right? Does it? When when Kassad is doing his damage to it, like massive damage, he's like, I'm destroying a monument. How does that work with their backwards time travel? (laughs) I'd like to know. I'd really like to know. Yeah. I think a lot has to do with the fluctuations. Yes. Are they only partially present? Like, is only a portion of them present until they open? And what's going to happen now that they are opening at the end of part two? Is the crystal monolith going to be unable to open? Has that changed something? I think they're going to fuse into a Voltron, which the, like, Kassad will pilot to kill the ouster swarms. And then the AI. And then the AI, yeah. (laughs) It's going to make a Gotron. Okay. Wait, did we decide if there was... Oh, right, because we don't know how many pilgrims there actually are. And then There's you... totally seven, right? Because well, some of them had, like, because Dure ends up at, like, the third cave tomb, and, like, Steve was in, like, the first cave tomb. And then... Okay, okay, it Ash, who do you easier. think the seven pilgrims are, or do you think there are more or fewer? Well, okay, so seven pilgrims, but it becomes easier once you start thinking of them as fractions of people. <laughs> 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 you know, like, is Hoyt three-fifths of a man? <laughs> <laughs> oh come on you can't give him three-fifths no i wouldn't give him three-fifths no i i think i think in that case duray is the actual pilgrim and hoyt was just kind of his vessel that like his transportation method to the time tombs mm-hmm. um, i can take that yeah i don't like yeah. hoyt i love duray yeah hoyt is just like he's just consumed with pain the entire time a certain character in wheel of time who doesn't become a character until like book three Mm-hmm. Like if you're just in crippling chronic pain the entire time, you're pretty much not even a person anymore. You heard it that here. Is, that is correct. You you are no longer a person. <laughs> People in says, pain says are the not man with chronic human. back pain. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Do you want to talk about his descent into hell when his or his deal with the devil in the tomb? Mm. In the jade tomb. I'm left wondering, what would happen if he just had launched himself into the sun? Like, surely the cruciform wouldn't have been able to do anything about that, right? And that would have been a lot more workable than uh, his plan. You know what? I will say that one of the weaknesses I find with Hyperion and Dan Simmons is his inability to bring stellar physics into his warfare. Mm, That's fair. Or nerds. Because those Farcasters should totally be opened up in the middle of a sun and just pointed at the enemy ships. <laughs> oh, that would be an incredibly effective weapon. Yeah. That would be, yeah. That's or like send one of them into a singularity and uh, yeah. see what happens. Or, or above a pulsar. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Or a quasar. Yeah. Get that ejection cone and just point it at your enemies and you're all good. Yeah, at least they won't exist anymore. <laughs> this is fine. <laughs> Who does that? Uh, Peter F. Hamilton does that in one of his novels. I actually have <laughs> the first three books of his... I don't know, maybe it's the only three books of one of his series. But that's those have been sitting on a shelf for a while. I need to take those up again, actually. It's not as good as Hyperion, but they're fine. Hmm. read one of his trilogies. He absolutely loves portals. I'll say that. The man loves portals. Portals are good. Did we say portal? Yeah. 
Portals, yeah. yeah. Top rated game on Steam. Hamilton likes Thanks Portals. Thanks to Legendary. Now, now whenever I hear Portal, there's just one thing that pops into my head. It has to do with Portal Fantasy. Oh, yes. No, we're, we're not going to talk there. about that argument. <laughs> <laughs> no, let's not. Uh, so, Ash, you have described two-fifths of one of the Pilgrims. Oh, do you want me to do all of them? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay. Console counts as a full Pilgrim. Kassad, um, maybe half of one. Uh, I'm going to say who he shares the half with later. <laughs> no, uh, two-thirds. I'm gonna say two-thirds, yeah. I think... Uh, oh, it's going to be hard for me to spoil what I... Uh, my thoughts if I talk about the rest of the pilgrims. Silenus is a full pilgrim. Okay. Um, yeah. Him is in, in insanity. Let's see. Uh, Lamia, half a pilgrim. Uh, she has Keats in her head. And a baby. Uh, maybe she's a third. <laughs> maybe the woman <laughs> has value the least. Which Keats? <laughs> third pilgrim. <laughs> That's true. Maybe she's a quarter. She's a quarter pilgrim. Oh, God. She's going downhill. Yeah. <laughs> well, like she does very little on her own. So I think this makes sense. Soul, like uh, half to two thirds, maybe. Is there anybody left? There's uh, Rachel. Uh, oh, Rachel gets a full third. The yeah. console. The console, full pilgrim. Yeah. Uh, Hetmastine. Oh, Hetmastine. Uh, yes, but just because I don't know what who his counterpart would be. Is he, so he's a full pilgrim? Okay. He's a full pilgrim. He's the element of randomness that we need in our story. In mm -hmm. our story about randomness. I think the point is no man's an island, and everyone is made up of those around us. Is that what we're going for? Uh, yeah. Yeah, if you want to get trite about it. And not like <laughs> <laughs> into into the, the, the messy intricacies of personhood or whatever. Okay, so if I'm doing the math here, we've got Hoyt and DeRay as one. Oh my god, you're actually doing the math. Kassad and I'm assuming Moneta is another one. Selenus is one. Lamy is a quarter with the rest of Keats. There's three quarters of Keats, I'm assuming. So we're putting uh, those. Well, no, no. She has a baby. She's pregnant. So, so, baby, yeah, baby she's pregnant. two Keats, right. Yeah. yeah okay, so that's five. Yeah. Hamastine is six. We need a seventh. Yeah, the console. No? Did you, did you include the console? Nope. I did not include the console. Okay. So there there's seven. Console and, and maybe his counterpart is the Ousters. <laughs> or Gladstone. Or both. The or hegemony both. and the Alsters yeah. are the other. Is third the Technicore part. involved? No. No. Okay. Well, their their part is partially Keats, who's linked up to the Technicore with the other Keats. Yeah. So then the Keats is bring the Technicores in. Who would you say is the pilgrim who might be most compromised by the Technicore, most influenced by? Uh, I think it depends on whether you buy my conspiracy theories <laughs> or not. I buy it. <laughs> like, it could be just Silenus, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'd say based on their story, um, Lamia, right? I mean, well, they're all the to some right? extent. Yeah. yeah. I mean, she literally has Keats in her head and Keats in her head, who's, you know, yep. created by the Technicore. Her pregnancy was probably created by the Technicore. I think Hoyt is the least compromised. I have an answer, but I can't say it because it gives away a lot from the other novels. <laughs> <laughs> Rachel um, is the least compromised. Um, Soul might be the most compromised as well. If, nope. you, if you think about the uh, dreams he's getting as being sent from the core. Maybe. Mm. I think the Erg is the least compromised. The Erg doesn't count. <laughs> the Erg is barely the Erg sentient. The does not count. And it also is trapped inside a cube. <laughs> yeah. Hey, he's barely true. sentient. That's almost sentient-ish. Extra dimensional cube. Somebody likes to murder things that are semi-sentient. Uh, yeah, how do you true. like luggage that's bigger on the inside? 
I love I'm it. Big fan of it. Yeah, I like Very bags. Very timey Hardest. Me too. Me too. You put your bags of holding inside your bags of holding. Hey, you, we talked about that. We did. <laughs> yeah, that's not a good thing to do. Uh, anyone else like bits of technology? Was there any like little piece that stood out in this setting? Alster's little torch ships with like six people on them. The Lancer <laughs> class. Yes, those are cool. Yes. Anti-Starfighter small capital ships. Mm-hmm. Uh, speaking of technology, could someone explain the Alster invasion? by the side of the hegemony understanding because no, they're like we, hey they must yeah. have started like 50 years ago and then they just set up their their drives and we just saw them now but we hey, can't explain that i i mean i can uh okay. so the hegemony understanding of the ousters is that 50 to 200 years ago they turned off their drives and activated decoy drives which continued on the path that they had been heading but secretly Sublight, they'd been traveling towards the web that whole time and have just now activated their hawking drives again to get closer to the web mm-hmm. and begin arriving within hours. It was said that this war has been in the planning stages for at least 400 years. Um, yeah. Starting before the death of Old Earth. It's like the Shawshank Redemption where he has to get through the wall and then go through the sewage <laughs> and then climb they all that. It's because it's they could... not possible. They can't see them unless their drives are on. Yeah, correct. They, they were like, their their drives are on, and they're going this direction, so they can't be over here. Mm-hmm. And then Commander Lee is like, "Well, if they turned off their drives, couldn't they sneak up on us?" And then the general was like, "Preposterous! That would never happen." They were like, "That would take two hundred years." <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they okay. they stopped using telescopes. And apparently, yeah. even with their drives on, they only check their locations every few years. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they have plenty of time in which to pull that kind of swap. I just want to know how they did the drives. How they did what? The decoy drives. Ah. I don't get the feeling that hawking drives are actually all that expensive to make, necessarily. It's the it's the ships and the life support and all of the rest of it, maybe, that's more expensive. Maybe. The general oh. said it was impossible to fake those. Impossible to fake, but not impossible to make. That's yeah, that's true. <laughs> like they are real hawking drives. They're not like yeah. balloons that are saying that they're hawking drives. We we also have like no idea what the Oster's economic situation no. is. So zero no. zero idea. Though we do know that their total number of hawking drives massively outnumbers that of the hegemony. Mm-hmm. It's because they're able to mine a lot of comets, which provide a lot of drops for them. I mean, they migrate. Yeah. They use yeah. up all the resources in one system and they go to the next. Well, because their fucking drives also have civilians, per se. They're not just a bunch mm-hmm. of military. So, you know, you say they're like way more, but that's like yeah. saying Bernard's world is just all war, all Marines and not just people. Well, I mean, that's what the generals said anyways. But then we saw 3000 Lancer class frigates and yeah. they were expected to only have 700 tops. 700 ships total. Well, the three thousand. I thought it was six thousand. Yeah, they were expected to have seven, six to seven hundred ships total with combat capacity, and mm-hmm. they had over three thousand Lancer frigates in one military action. Mena mm-hmm. was not very happy to hear that, or maybe she mm-hmm. was. Hard to tell with her. <laughs> and uh, Counselor Albedo was like, uh, "Yeah, the Technocore is just as stupid as you guys. I promise." See ya. But our estimates showed this number. <laughs> But no one asked us, so we didn't tell anybody. 
Yeah. Yep. Yep. Super useful AI advisory council there. Super useful. <laughs> seems so frustrating working with them. But yeah, they do just hold all the cards, it seems. So. Well, they that's do. another thing. They, they needed to stop listening to them a long time ago. The generals were like, yeah, whatever. They're probably right, too. And it's like, everybody like these AIs are cool. Like, come on, people. Think for yourselves. <laughs> they draw attention again and again to the fact that Force tries to keep itself separate from the Technocore in its simulations and its battle t- tactics. Mm-hmm. And their AIs are almost as good as are in the core. They're almost sentient, yes. Yeah, one level higher and they would have to be incorporated. Which is a very nice way of saying they're as smart as a dog. <laughs> what, Heron, what are you counting? I'm doing math. I'm trying to uh, think of all the pilgrims. Seeing... I'm, counting... <laughs> I'm, I'm not counting them as fractions. I'm counting them as whole people and seeing if it's a, a prime number or not. That way lies futility. Mm. <laughs> So we didn't get a ton of Hetmastine in this half of the story, <laughs> but we did get one interesting piece on God's Grove. We got a dinner at Treetops, the most exclusive restaurant in the web. What did you all think of dining with the elites of society? Yeah, it gives a kind of incredible picture of what this future is, because as is made clear... There's a lot of millionaires because there's 150 billion people and there's a lot of billionaires on top of that. And like in this restaurant that has all the most important people in the web, there's still like a huge amount of people and they eat gray soup, which is disturbing. Exclusivity is a function of power still. Yeah. Because you can't just exclude people based on wealth anymore. Too many. Pretentious artists do survive and they thrive in this world. I just think that the Technicore is keeping the system from collapsing for whatever reason. Because if it was like this, like, I don't know, there should have been some sort of communist uprising hundreds of years ago. Uh, if you believe Marx, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm not even a communist, and, like, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> this, just, I like... this does not seem like a very good view of the future, in my opinion. If we wanted to, to get into the darkness of this world a little bit, and the... The kind of subtle way that it's portrayed, we can talk about weirwood, the sacred wood that the Templars grow and construct only very special things out of. And we can note that there were only a few things that we've actually seen made out of weirwood in the series, and one of them is the desks that senators sit at in Mm. the Senate. And we see it being used in treetops, not for flooring, but for other things. And I want to ask, how far do you think that the Templars have compromised their economic values for power and status? Depending on how closely interwoven they are with the Church of the Shrike, maybe they didn't compromise their values at all, right? I mean, do you think that it is a form of atonement, perhaps? (laughs) It very well could be. (laughs) Like, uh, Hetmastine sacrificed his tree ship, or at least that's what's implied. And they only have four of those. So... They're playing some high brinksmanship game as well, behind the scenes, at least. The Senate desk's being made out of weirwood, though. Do you think that is hopeful? Do you think it's sad? Do you think it's... What's your feelings on that? Sad. It's like when people in our world either go like go and hunt this rare animal, or like they have desks made out of this wood that's now extinct because they like the exclusivity of it. It's just a flex. They're, like I don't think there's anything redeeming about it, basically. Is Mirrorwood extinct? No, no it's, it's not extinct, but it's sacred. Rare. Well, because, yeah. uh, I mean, 
I guess it's to me it's it's like it's renewable. So okay, fine, it's sacred. But I mean, there's a thing to be said about using too much of renewable resources too. And yeah, it's forbidden to use it for flooring, for example. Mm-hmm. You cannot step on it. How do you climb the tree? A lot of things are sacred because of their usefulness. Like in India, cows, for example, they don't eat them, but they're revered for it. You know, they're giving their milk. So if something is sacred because it's useful, I think it's fine. Mm-hmm. Okay. But used for frivolous purposes like a senator's desk, like doesn't fall into the category for me. It was a gift from God's Grove, from the Templars mm. of God's Grove to the Senate of the Hegemony. And that's like, that relies on how you, how cynical you are about the Senate. <laughs> and we've seen the Senate, and we've only seen maybe two senators that we respect. Yeah. When was this and given? one shot himself in the back of the head twice. Yes. <laughs> well, we've seen all of the senators give basically useless information and advice to Mayna Gladstone. None of them have ever been useful. Yeah. They deliver votes for her, and that's about it. The I- islands on Maui Covenant right now are, are very highly prized, and rich people like Martin Silenus have houses there. Or they use them on the River Tethys. Yeah, but Maui Covenant itself has been absolutely destroyed by the web, and the dolphins kill themselves. Well, there's even a line about talking about not just Maui Covenant, but other worlds, how the scientists and the engineers keep the husk of it alive. Yeah, but the actual yeah there is. Died. Yep. And, I mean, maybe the people who, the Templars who settled God's Grove needed to keep some sort of minimum level of web interaction alive. Maybe they had to cultivate this kind of commercial ecotourism while still forbidding scammers, while forbidding EMVs and putting strict ecological limitations on industry on their planet. They're still attached to the web, but they're trying to keep one planet whole. But as uh, the consul says in the end of Hyperion, whether or not you believe him, this is like a kind of corrosive thing. Like New Jerusalem is like 10 years away from getting ravaged by the web as well, even with all the safeguards they put in place. Um, and treetops is uh perhaps just a sign of worse to come yeah well that's why you know we've talked about like gladstone is trying to protect the hegemony and And here we come back to mana (laughs) but to me what she's also trying to do is protect humans from themselves because they have we've had this destructive path and we have the Mm -hmm. map and we just use that map to do it every single time to every single world so she's yep. like, do you not see how this is a problem? And so maybe, you know, two, three, four billion people need to die to fix it. And as the web gets bigger, its tourism on every new planet only grows as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and forecasters make it too easy to get to places. Mm-hmm. Like almost no one goes to Mars because you have to take a couple of hours on a spaceship to get mm-hmm. there in the first place. Not even hours, just minutes. Is it minutes? It's, yeah, it's minutes. Not long. Like yeah, it's minutes. it's like maybe twenty minutes, but it's still just minutes. Mars also doesn't seem that great, and, and they think of it as like this pilgrimage. Yeah, well, pilgrimages are supposed to be hard. Yeah, I take a pilgrimage to the grocery store every other yeah. week. I mean, there's there's some evidence for accepting Man and Gladstone as a pilgrim because she does her little walks of the web. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she is a pilgrim who goes from corner to corner trying to learn the place that she's in control of, and also the birthplaces and homes of the pilgrims that she's sent to their deaths. I think the fundamental problem of the web is ju- it's just too big. There's 150 billion people 
and it's like they have like a ton of worlds and nobody can really get to put down roots in places because it's too easy to travel from place to place that's like a large part of why maui covenant was destroyed because yeah they just had too many tourists people wanted to see there who weren't respectful of the uh, natural ecology so you're saying simmons is writing this book as uh, a warning of globalization uh i don't i wouldn't go that far i would say i would say that's definitely in there somewhere i, yeah. I think that's part of it but i think that as far as it goes to like being an unwieldy thing i think the late roman empire is also a good analogy i hate you yeah, there you go. Check off your bingo, bingo cards, people. <laughs> <laughs> and yet there's this instant in, I forget if it's in the War Room or in Olympus Command. I think it's in Olympus Command, where they start off one of the visualizations with one of the whole galaxy. And then they zoom in and they zoom in and they zoom in until you can just see the web and the ouster swarms. Yeah. And it's just tiny in comparison to the galaxy just tiny in comparison yeah that space it only stretched out like a couple dozen light years mm-hmm. and uh as wally pointed out very uh very aptly there's a lot of space out in space plenty <laughs> of space out in space <laughs> <laughs> yes i love yes. that that's awesome and the ousters <laughs> seem to have realized that and are are using that but the hegemony doesn't want to go any further than it can reach the Farcaster portals. Yeah. How did you like that the first wave of targets was all of the worlds that she went sleepwalking to? Well, not sleepwalking, but... Oh, was it's it? just a coincidence. Yeah, yeah. It's just a coincidence. Totally. Dan Simmons needed to pick some worlds, so he just... <laughs> it was for the reader. The, a lot of these felt, felt really established, but they're, they're on the edge of the hegemony? Is that why they can get to them so quickly? The hegemony is not a normal, like, topological map. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It kind of stretches out, and distances get distorted based on however fast you can forecast from one place to the next. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Like, the protector, it's definitely on the edges for the most part, but you can have a swarm pass really close to a core world, but have it still be on the geographical outside of the hegemony. Mm. Mm -hmm. Galaxies are flat, but only when you zoom out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. We got the ups and the downs. And not every galaxy is flat. There are globular yeah, galaxies. That's true. Hey. Our galaxy is flat. Our galaxy is flat. Yes. The best galaxy. Um I don't know. Yeah. Did you ever like look at all the different galaxies and be like, eh, the Milky Way is like not the best type? It's like so average. <laughs> I hate you guys. I love it. I think <laughs> you guys really gotta cool. have some pride in your galaxy. <laughs> <laughs> Like, which is more aesthetically pleasing, a spiral galaxy or a barred spiral galaxy? I can't always decide. Mm, I like Whichever the, the Milky Way is. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I feel about the Patriots. Uh, I live in their area, so I'm their fan. That's how this works. <laughs> I don't feel that way about galaxies, surprisingly. Mm. No loyalty. None. None, None. whatsoever. Uh, chocolate bars. Galaxies named after chocolate bars are the best. Yeah, that's how it works. Mm-hmm. <laughs> someone sent uh, a Milky Way wrapper back in time, and then someone picked it up and he's like, hey, that's a good name for a galaxy. Yeah. Oh, time loops. <laughs> We're getting into paradoxes. Real life is Hyperion. <sighs> how did you guys oh. feel about the cruise ships that were trying to get passage to the Hyperion system to watch and be tourists? Oh. 
Uh, not surprised whatsoever. Yep. Um, it's sad. <laughs> yeah, like, hegemony citizens have been living lives of decadence, and as the text says, war is the last thing that's really left to them. <laughs> it's not just decadence, man. Like, rubbernecking is a thing. Yeah. I don't know what that is. Rubbernecking is when you're, uh, you know, you're in a long line when you're supposed to be going fast, right? But everyone has to stop traffic because there was a car accident. And now everyone wants to go fast, but once you get to the accident, you kind of slow uh, down and try to look yes, at the course. accident. Yeah. How do we feel about the hegemony's lack of a death penalty, but instead their presence of full shunt tanks? Much they're just worse. a brain in a jar with no sensory input kept alive indefinitely. That is, uh, yeah, they did a Black Mirror on that one. <laughs> they of. really did. Yep. Yeah. I need to watch that show. Uh, I, yeah, I can't it. think of anything much worse. Like, yeah. <laughs> what? They're not barbaric anymore. They don't have the death penalty. <laughs> I can't imagine what society would think that's a good idea or who would be okay with this as like an alternative. Well, it's secret. I mean, yeah, they can still think. They're brains in jars. Yeah. They just can't sense anything or talk to anybody or do anything. That's when you like really hope you've installed snake on like an internal implant or something. (laughs) Your brain. No, they would have taken, they would take it away. They'd be like, no, no fun for you. You got to keep it hidden. Just like in math class. (laughs) Ah, tuck it under the amygdala. No one ever thinks to yeah. look there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Anybody have anything else before we wrap up? Because I think we've done a pretty good job talking about everybody. Milky Way represent. Yeah. Um, well, we haven't talked about the Shrike at all. I don't know if there's anything to say about is the Shrike, it, but it's a Is there a point presence. of talking about the Shrike? Other than that, he, like every good horror villain, he picks people off as they're alone. Um, Martin Silenus yeah. does a fantastic job of lampshading what's going to happen. <laughs> Uh, he's like this is like one of those old horror hollows don't go off one by one Uh, it's gonna pick us off on one and then Kassad leaves but then he follows his own he doesn't listen to his own advice for the record I think Martin is actually the first one to get carried off on his own yeah (laughs) the first who completely separates himself from the pack yeah because Kassad doesn't fight the Shrike until like okay so first he goes five years in the future and then he goes like a million years in the future. So really, Kassad's the last one to fight the Shrike. Hmm. Although By I don't that think that's in this section. Standard. Yes. No, no, that's in this section. Um, kind of. Yeah. But like, I only sorry. read this section. Uh, okay. Let's see. He's on a uh, glass Hyperion that were like the dunes have all been turned into molten sculptures, and the time tombs are brand new and undamaged. And then there's a hundred shrikes in front of him, and he has mm, to. That's true. Try yeah, and kill them all. Superman punch one. That yeah. made me like Kassad a little bit more, or at least Kassad <laughs> Sumpkins. It was pretty cool. I like how it's emphasized that you can still see his penis through his new Quicksilver <laughs> suit. <laughs> it was made explicit. Yes, it was. Yeah. <laughs> yep. <laughs> it's just such a hilarious image. Just like a butt naked man going to fight this metal monstrosity. I mean, not naked, Quicksilver. That's true, but like you have to, you have to admire the. Uh, he, he's like a uh, nude silver surfer. Position. I wonder. <laughs> do you think the high Islam or the high Muslims circumcise? I, I am like zero percent familiar with Islamic doctrine. <laughs> I have no idea about the circumcision practices of the Tharsis slums. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Simmons, slums, like so. you, you failed us. Well, okay, to be fair yeah. to the Tharsis slums, Abraham 
did the first circumcisions with like a sharp rock. So yeah, that's like it can't really get worse than that. Sharp fish. <laughs> um, I googled and it says Muslims are still the largest single religious group to circumcise boys. So I think that Kassad was circumcised. We're four hundred years in the what's future. The, what's yeah. the relevance? Um, it's important, man. He needs to visualize his penis properly. This is for the mental image. Okay. I... Exactly. Karen needs to visualize things. Talking about alternate possibilities for pilgrims, let's talk about Theo Lane, Governor General. Oh, yeah. What do you guys think of him? He's a good guy. I have no opinion on him. He's, he's the guy that was on Hyperion, take care of it, and he's like, hey, consul, yeah. you know, you want a job? Help me. That's That's all I remember. He's a great example of a local mayor guy who's in over his head. Yeah. Um, so I think he would be a downgrade from the console. But you know who would be an upgrade? Cicero. Yeah. That's not his name, right? Uh, what is no. the guy from Cicero? <laughs> I don't know okay. So here's a quote from Theo Lane. If it were up to me, I would have denied the Pilgrim's Passage and allowed Dr. Arundas' team priority access. Mm. Mm-hmm. Dan Simmons is telling us that we can't solve this through hard sci-fi means. I think he is. I think yeah. he is. And that Theo Lane would have been the wrong choice for a pilgrim. I do like how, despite Hyperion really being soft sci-fi in a lot of ways, the world still makes sense for the most part. Like a lot of soft sci-fi, it's just like this, like you hand wave a lot. But yeah, like in Hyperion, your military is like super competent with this hyper-advanced weaponry and like logistics oh, yeah. of things do... You know, like he knows all the words. He knows all the jargon. (laughs) (laughs) He just is telling something that maybe doesn't revolve around how accurately one of the protagonists can point a flechette cannon. Yeah. Also, is it just me or is it a giant red flag that Bron Lamia's hero is Peter Pan? (laughs) Like someone someone tell Johnny he needs to get out. (laughs) I mean, yes, it is a giant red flag. But have you read Keats's Hyperion? That is also a giant red flag. Oh, no, I haven't. <laughs> Maybe I will. We should. Really, really just all poetry writing. Red flag. The sequel to this podcast. We'll, we'll go through all the romantic poets. All the romantic dying, poets. Dying of tuberculosis. Red flag. Mm. Yo, that's true. How is he going to yeah. provide for you if he's dead? He can't. Non-value mail right there. Right there. <laughs> I had an English teacher in high school, and whenever we didn't know what a poem was about, she literally just told us, it's about sex. That's, like, a lot of it, yeah. Yep. I mean, if you're um, reading Catullus, that's correct. <laughs> <laughs> I think we should end the episode. Or we should. talk more about circumcision. <laughs> I don't really think there's much to say. Oh, well, we were talking yeah. about Cicero and the mayor. Do you guys think that they are circumcised? Okay, uh, thank you for joining us today on the green team of the Legendarium. You can read us on Twitter and on Discord. Our Twitter is Green Team Pod. Thank you, Craig, for loaning us this quarter of your media empire, and thank you, Horizon Brave, for starting it all. Our intro and outro music is Galactic Damages, Jingle Punks. Woo!